Good afternoon, everybody. It's good to be here with you. And I want to thank everyone, first of all, for offering yourselves as you are doing on this retreat. I know it's a kind of, it can be scary, it can be, you can be in a vulnerable place, and I'm grateful to all the spirit that's coming forward of open-heartedness. So, I come from a Zen tradition, and in our tradition, before anybody gives a Dharma talk, whether it's the wisest elder Roshi or a young Zen student giving their first Dharma talk, we do a chant before the talk, and everybody does the chant together. I'm not expecting you to do it. You don't know it, but I'll, I'll tell you the chant. It goes like this. An unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Having it to see and listen to, to remember and accept, I vow to taste the truth of the Tathagata's words. Well, the first time I heard that, I thought, oh my God, give me a break, you know. <laughs> this is so arrogant. I can't believe this person is giving a talk and they're saying an, an unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma is about to come. <laughs> and, um, but I have given talks and had to do that chant, and I have come to so appreciate it. And I understand it in a completely different way now. And I say it here because I want you all to know that about yourselves as you're writing and painting. Whatever is coming out from you is an unsurpassed, penetrating, and perfect dharma. <laughs> and it is, you know, you are perfectly expressing yourself in the moment. And we can just be grateful for, for these, these expressions and take each, each thing as the teaching of Buddha. So it says in the chant, it's rarely met with even a hundred thousand million kalpas, but at the same time, it's met with every moment, each moment, going on to the next moment. There's another moment of the Dharma, of the teachings, and you are offering yourself to the universe in each moment. I handed out some questionnaires to the writers um, asking them some things about their needs and intentions in order to help me um, figure out how to serve people best. And one of the questions was, what, what do you see, uh, what gets in your way, how did I put it, what difficulties do you face in your writing? And there were a large number of people who were making reference to some doubt, self-doubt, and not having confidence in your own voice and fear of not being able to express yourself or uh, fear of not being able to loosen up, let go, be creative, be wild. So I understand this and I want to acknowledge that there's, there is, we have a lot of anxiety about being creative. What if I'm not creative? Um, and it's, it can make it hard for us, and I've felt this myself a lot, and I know the sort of fear of the blank page um, about 
30 years ago or so. I was in therapy. I was trying to take myself seriously as a writer. And I made an agreement with my therapist. She had a, she didn't answer her office phone, but she had an answering machine. And every day I called her answering machine. And I said to the answering machine, this is Sue. I'm a writer with something valuable to say. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to work for the next two hours. <laughs> so um, it was kind of a, in a way, a sort of pathetic little device. But it was helpful and uh, it encouraged me and it helped me talk myself into taking myself seriously. And, you know, we need to do whatever we can to en encourage ourselves. <laughs> so I, I also think we have to acknowledge that in our culture there is this huge emphasis on product and uh, the idea of being a successful writer or artist is an appealing idea. There's some cachet to it. And we think that success means you know, making something that a lot of people will love and buy. And, and uh, probably I'm not the only person in the room who has uh, had some lurking desire to have many, many people buy my books and love me madly for it. So <laughs> we, we know that feeling. And... Um, you know, I, I want people to say, oh, you completely changed the way I see the world, or whatever. And there's that, I think, I can't remember if it's a Beatles song or a uh, Rolling Stones song. Some of you, besides me, might be old enough to remember that goes something about, I want to be a paperback writer. Do you remember that song? Yeah. Beatles, Beatles. Uh, yeah, so there's that, oh, let's, let's, all, let's be a paperback writer. Well, uh, you know, these, these are... Um, these are troublesome, troublesome social models. Um, you know, myself, I, you know, I have my new book is out, and I admit that I, I like it. It makes me feel good when somebody says, I really liked your book. It makes me feel good. However, I'm practicing really hard to hold it lightly. It's important to hold it lightly because I know that that's a bottomless pit going that direction. There's no satisfaction there, ultimately. And if true happiness were based for me on how many people buy my book, I'd be really heading for trouble, and I would never be satisfied. So that is the nature of our desire. I have a, a friend who's a writer, and some years ago, she's written a number of books, but she wrote one that was doing very well and got onto the Bay Area bestseller list. And I congratulated her and said, oh, that's great. It was a good book, too. And I said, it's really good, and it's great that you made the Bay Area bestseller list, and that must make you feel great. And she said, yeah, I felt really great for a couple of days, and then I just started to feel terrible that I wasn't on the New York Times <laughs> bestseller list. So that's the wrong road to go down, really. And besides... Um, you know, what difference does it make in the long run? I mean, really, the stars that Wes was telling us about don't care. And in the short run, what difference does it make either, for that matter? And the, all the millions of beings in our abdomens, our stomachs, they don't care either. So um, at some level, it really doesn't matter at all. And this week, we're here to leave that world, those concerns aside and to forget product and really try to enter the flow. 
we're trying to feel our fluidity and feel our porousness and come together with no labels for ourselves. You know, some of us are painting, some of us are writing, but we're not here as writers or as painters. We're here painting and writing. We're doing it. We're in the process. We're in the flow. And I think I might have mentioned this the other day, but as I tell the writers, and I tell myself, you know, we don't own the words we use. They've come to us from earlier generations. They're just passing through us. And in the same way, you, painters don't, you don't own the pigment, you don't own color. So um, it's coming through us. Still, we do want to offer something. This is a wholesome I desire to offer something. We want to make a contribution. And so we cultivate some faith in ourselves and some trust in ourselves. I've been practicing Buddhism and I've been practicing writing for many years and I continue to work with the practice of cultivating faith in myself and trust in myself. It's an ongoing practice. So I remind myself that I have everything I need. We all have everything we need and all we really need to do is offer ourselves just as we are. And when I feel doubt and I think, well, what do I know? Who am I to talk, talk about this? Then I just remember, well, all I have to offer is myself, just as I am. That's all I've got. I'm a person, I, I'm an example of a human being who's struggling to become her full self, who's working with her own deluded mind, and I'm just one particular example of a human being. I'm the example that I happen to know best, so that's the example I'll talk about. Um, and my own authentic self is enough. This is enough to offer. It's, it's actually a great deal, just this, to offer your own authenticity. And it's also an encouragement to others when you offer your own true self. People feel that and it helps them. So there are many forms that it can take what your own true offering is. It takes many forms and at different times it takes different forms. But just to keep coming back to what is it, what do I have to give? What, what am I wanting to put forth here? And one of the writing prompts that I sometimes use, and we've used it this week, is um, when people are writing and in the middle of a writing exercise, I'll interrupt and say, okay, start the next sentence with the words, what I really want to say is, and then five minutes later, I'll interrupt again and say, okay, start the next sentence with the words, what I really want to say is, so you can interrupt yourself with that question as you go through your days. What I really want to say is, and just come back to that. You might say it with a dance or a mathematical formula or some brownies. You know, there's lots of ways of saying what you really want to say. There's a quote I want to read you from Martha Graham, which you may have heard. I used to use it at the beginning of every workshop, but I haven't used it for a while, um, and I'd just like to come back to it. She says, there is a vitality, a life force, an energy, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. 
the world will not have it. It is not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares with other expressions. It is your business to keep the channel open. You do not even have to believe in yourself or your work. Keep open and aware directly to the urges that motivate you. Keep the channel open. So this is the flow that we've been talking about here, the flow of being alive. And to be alive is to change and to move and to grow older and to be impermanent. And I want to talk about impermanence this afternoon. Um, it's one of the three marks of existence that Buddha said describe our lives. There's dissatisfaction, impermanence, and no fixed self. And impermanence just keeps happening. It's already a little bit later than it was when I started my Dharma talk, and we're all a little bit older. And there's nothing we can do about it. It just happens. And it can be scary that we just keep getting older. I've been focusing my attention on impermanence the last few years and on aging um, as I have begun to experience it. And I've been writing about it, and I have this book, This Is Getting Old, which I'm actually going to read a couple pieces from today. But um, I started to notice that I was getting old, and I hadn't actually been planning to get old. Um, so this was disappointing to me. I thought, you know, other people would do it, but I would take my vitamins and do my exercise, and I would have lots of birthdays come and go, but I wouldn't actually get old. And there's some difficulty when, when I was young. I had some difficulty identifying with older people. Uh, but I started to notice that it was happening to me. And I also acknowledge the fact that I'm a baby at getting old. I'm in my mid-60s. I'm healthy. I'm very fortunate. Um, so I have a lot of respect for my elders and people who are feeling more of the frailties and losses of age. But I thought it would be a good time for me as I, my bones are getting porous and my arthritis is getting into my knees and I'm sitting in a chair now, not on the floor. You know, I might as well get in training and apply some curiosity to what is this and, and prepare myself and be present in the moment. So, uh, also, you know, getting old isn't a subject only of interest to old people because every single one of us is getting old. And we're all getting older right now, no matter how young we are. And it's an amazing fact, if you look around this room, at how old everybody is when you consider that every single person in this room was a baby in diapers at one point. And we're quite a long way from that. So uh, you probably also know people who are getting old, even if you're not old. So, <laughs> um, my Buddhist practice encourages me to not to turn away from what's difficult. This is one of the things we really try to do in practice, is to meet what comes up, even if it's difficult. And this is really the way of transformation, to meet the <coughs> difficulty and to learn to say, oh, so this is what it is, this is what it is. This is how it is. I had to drop out of my hip-hop dance class at the Y, um, and I can't go backpacking anymore. 
and I'm sorry about those things. Uh, I love backpacking, and the hip-hop dance class was fun, although it wasn't a huge loss in my life. <laughs> but my knees just couldn't take it. But I can still go for walks in Strawberry Canyon in the hills behind Berkeley, and I got myself a great pair of hiking poles. And so that's a wonderful thing. And if the time comes when I can't do that anymore, then things will be different again, and then it will be a different way. But this is how it is now. So I try to just be present with how it is now. And my writing practice, also like my Buddhist practice, encourages me to look at what's difficult and um, to work, to write about what's difficult. And as I, one of my writing mottos is to write about the glitches in life, the big glitches and the little glitches. That's really what's interesting. And that's where some good stories are. And if you do that, that's a way of giving yourself away, too. So a couple of years ago, I decided I would really make a project of writing about aging. And I made a list of all the scary, bad things I could think about, about aging. Some of them were already starting to happen to me, and some of them were just sort of future worries. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll, write, about, I'll write an essay about each one of these things to kind of cheer myself up and make myself realize that it's, I, I can handle it or something. And so I, and then I did go ahead and start writing, and I wrote about memory loss, I wrote about arthritis and osteoporosis, I wrote about how surprisingly difficult it was to give up my identity as a magazine editor when I retired from my job. I was looking forward to retiring, but uh, the loss of, of that identity was much harder than I expected. And I wrote about my mother's very difficult death in the ICU after a car accident, even though she was in her 80s. I wrote about becoming the feeling of becoming invisible as an older woman, and I wrote about my fear of loneliness. I wrote about different things that were coming up for me in my life. And as I wrote about them, I did find some turnings and some openings. And I did help myself to face these things and to hold them a little more lightly and to find some humor in them as well and to find some acceptance. This is how it is. And what else is here? And I also found new life coming my way as a result of impermanence, and other unexpected things happened, and some wonderful things happened. For example, I became a grandmother thanks to impermanence. Um, my granddaughter wasn't there once, but now she is. <laughs> um, and now all of all of a sudden, I find myself being Grandma Sue. Who would have ever thought that I would be Grandma Sue? What a wonderful thing. And I noticed that as really old friends got older, there was something wonderful there, too, that in an old friendship, there's something very precious. And a friendship can't be any older than the friend. So when you get older, you can have really old friendships. And that's a very wonderful thing you have to look forward to if you aren't old yet. Um, and I wrote about returning to my kind of tomboy self as I got older and, and kind of laid aside some gender concerns and could just be a little more genderless in my approach to life and not worry about whether I'm feminine or not and stuff like that. So that's, that's something that comes <laughs> with advancing age, or at least did for me. And I have more time for spiritual journeying and dharma practice and more 
interest in it in a way, or more attention for it in a certain way. And I think I have an increased interest in the present moment. So I wrote about all of these different things and um, approached it all with curiosity and was kind of interested to discover what I discovered along the way. So I wanted to read a couple of pieces that pertain to time and therefore to impermanence. And um, I'll start with one about memory. This is called, Where Did I Put My Begging Bowl? <laughs> the other day, as I was filling out a form, I couldn't remember my social security number. I made a running start at it several times, but I couldn't get past 013. I had to look it up on last year's income tax form. This only happened once, and then it came back, thank goodness. But it was very distressing. To reassure myself, I recited the books of the Old Testament in order without a pause. <laughs> My great aunt had paid me $2 to learn them when I was 10, and they've stayed in my head for over 50 years. She said it would come in handy to know them by heart, and so it did, though not in the way she had expected. <laughs> of course, memory loss is a normal part of aging. I bet Buddha sometimes forgot where he put his bowl down in his later years. But normal or not, it's inconvenient, even disabling. More than once, I've had to enlist a friend to walk the streets with me, looking for where I parked my car. My mind, like my bladder, is shrinking with age so that it doesn't hold as much at once. <laughs> I now put people in my Rolodex by their first name if I think I'm going to forget their last. Forgetfulness seems to eat away at people's names starting at the end, so that sometimes I find myself clinging to the first letter of the first name like a person at sea hanging onto a splintered piece of the mast. My mother went through a, a period of time when she said she couldn't remember ordinary words. She began writing them down after she did remember them in a little notebook that she carried around with her. Catalog, vascular, pollen. She thought she might be able to look them up when she needed them. Now it happens to me too. I know there's a good word for the thing I want to say, and I can't get hold of it. If somebody else says it, I know what it means, but I can't seem to get it on the hook and reel it in to put it in my... What do you call those wicker baskets that fishermen use? <laughs> when I had a particularly bad spate of many memory problems a couple of years ago, I got scared. For a couple of weeks, it seemed as though I forgot something serious every day like leaving my purse in the shopping cart in the grocery store parking lot. When I went back to the store an hour later, the cart was right where I'd left it with my purse still in it. <laughs> I went to see a psychologist about my cognitive functioning. He was over 60 himself, and first we reminisced about the 60s, which helped to put me at my ease. <laughs> then he had me repeat strings of numbers and words, forwards and backwards. I did very well, he told me, for your age. <laughs> This was reassuring, though for your age has a sad ring to it, kind of like you look good for a woman your age. <laughs> the visit helped me to accept that some memory loss is normal. It's what's happening. I have a different brain now, but as long as I'm grasping for the mind I had 20 years ago, I suffer. Then, too, there's the remembering. I may not remember the last names of lots of people I know, but I remember seeing my father standing in the doorway of our apartment in Chicago, 
looking like a stranger in his brown army uniform and hat, silhouetted against the light from outside. I must have been about two and a half, and he was going off to the war in the Pacific. The older you are, the more of your life is in the past, and the more historical your memories become. It's part of the job description of an older person to tell stories about times that are gone, about what it's like to have your father disappear into a war, for example, or about stepping off the Greyhound bus in Biloxi, Mississippi, 45 years ago, to work on voter registration, and being greeted by the sheriff saying, now don't you be causing any trouble in our town, young lady. History's not what really happened. There's no such thing. It's what people remember and tell each other. But it is good if you don't go on too long. Sometimes I tell a story more than once, forgetting that I've told it before, especially when I'm talking to my children. <laughs> I try to remember to say, stop me if I've already told you this, because I know from listening to my own mother how annoying it is to sit through a story you've heard before, pretending to be surprised at the punchline. Well, actually, it's only annoying if you remember the story. <laughs> and this is one reason why old folks should hang out together. When I tell my old friend Bill a story for the second time, it doesn't matter because he's completely forgotten the story. This is called beginner's mind. <laughs> Memory is plastic, whatever age you are. What I remember isn't necessarily what happened, and how I remember it changes depending on my changing focus of attention. The body memories, like how you button a button, seem to be the last to go. A long-time Dharma sister has advanced Alzheimer's and is no longer able to come to the Zen Center to practice. But she did come for a long time after she'd forgotten how to manage her life. Someone from the Sangha would pick her up at home and bring her to morning Zazen. She didn't know where she was going or why or who was helping her. She had to be guided from the car to the Zen Center and she had to be helped into her priest's robes. But once she was inside the zendo, the forms of her 35 years of practice were held in her body. I was moved to see how, during service, she was right on track, manifesting dignity and devotion. She recited the Heart Sutra from memory along with everyone else. She bowed when it was time to bow, and she exited the zendo when her turn came, greeting the abbot with a gasho on her way out. Outside the zendo, she was lost again. Sometimes, driving along one of my familiar routes, I suddenly can't remember where I'm going. Then I'm in a dark place, even in broad daylight. I keep driving, slowly, hoping I'll remember where I'm going before I get there. So far, I always have. Zen master Dogen, my favorite Zen master, famously wrote, as Wes reminded us, to study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by the 10,000 things. What does he mean by forgetting the self? Could forgetting my social security number or where I parked my car be steps in the right direction? <laughs> if I lose my memory, will I stop being me or is there a me beneath the memory? Is there a look in my eye that will stay no matter what I forget? I believe that Dogen is talking about forgetting self-concern. And as I grow older, I notice what an excellent time it is to practice this kind of forgetting. It's all about letting go. 
I can forget about accomplishing all my ambitions. It's too late for that. Sometimes, for a moment, I taste the relief of letting this self fold gently into the next self, moment by moment, like eggs into batter. It's time to forget some things and remember others. As a matter of fact, the planet needs all of us human beings to remember our history and to remember our own accountability in it. History is a process that we keep on making out of the stories we tell each other about the past. These days, if you forget the books of the Old Testament, you can look them up on the Internet. But there are still some things that the Internet can't remember for you, like where you parked the car. And the stories of your life, they aren't on the Internet either. How it was, for example, to be sitting in bed nursing your newborn baby when you learned on the TV news of Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Oh, by the way, it's Creel, that wicker basket for fish. So in our Buddhist practice, we constantly bring ourselves back to the present moment. We do our creating in the present moment. Now is the moment of making. Now is the moment of living. And this is one way of meeting the condition of impermanence. Our lives are fleeting, and yet if we enter the present moment, we have all the time in the world. Whatever age we are, we can be here now, just the age we are. My granddaughter measures her age in small fractions of years. Now, as she will tell you, she's four and a quarter. She wants full credit. So I will tell you with pride that I'm 67 and 11 twelfths. <laughs> but I remember when I was a child, I wanted to grow up and be a, I wanted to be a teenager. I wanted to get older. And when I was a teenager, I wanted to be a grown-up. And now that I'm older, sometimes I think I want to be younger. And it makes me wonder, well, is there a point somewhere in the middle of life when just for a moment you're on this delicate balance point and you're just exactly the age you want to be? And then the next day you're too old and the day before you were too young? I don't think so. There's a, um, in the Great Panther's office in Berkeley, which I've visited, there's, um, it used to be next door to our Buddhist Peace Fellowship office, and they had walls, posters all over their walls of, of portraits of photographs of a face uh, of all different ages, and under each face it said, the best age to be is the age you are. So this is the moment of being alive. This is it, and we might as well just dive in. Over my desk I have a sign that says, don't think for a moment, you're not going to die. I made it on my computer and printed it out, and I stuck it up in the wall. And sometimes somebody comes over and says, ooh, that's weird, that's morbid. But actually, it makes me feel great. <laughs> it cheers me up in some funny way. I look at that sign, and I say, whew, yeah, I'm alive now. So just do it, Sue. Let's just do it. <laughs> so that's kind of what Katie was, I mean, Aunt, what Anne was talking about when she was talking about um, the tool of impermanence as a, one of the tools to help us um, in our creative process. You know, we really might as well just go ahead now because of our impermanent condition. We have nothing to lose. 
So make a commitment to yourself to be alive. I've had some struggles with commitment in my life, and I've had a tendency to want to keep all my options open and to explore all the possibilities and to really wait till I make a decision until I've just figured everything out and just keep, keep all the possibilities open. But gradually I began to notice that you know, possibilities are great, but if they just stay possibilities, then nothing ever happens. They never turn into reality. And you have to just make a choice and do something in order to have a life. So just jump in. I used to study bookbinding really seriously years ago. And in bookbinding, there's a part when you're uh, making a cloth-bound cover for a book, you have a piece of heavy, heavy cardboard, and then you have book cloth, which is made, it's kind of cloth that's made to cover books. <coughs> and you cut the cloth to put on the cover, and you put your paste on the cloth, and then you have to spread the cloth over the book cover. Am I doing that? Oh. Um, in one fell swoop, and it's called, the word that's used is you commit the cloth to the board. And you just have to do it without hesitation, because if you hesitate, it will wrinkle, it will get twisted, it won't work. Uh, it only works if you just commit and do it. So that's, I think that's a helpful metaphor. We, and if you do it wrong, you know, you can do it again. You make mistakes, sure. But go ahead and commit, because if you hesitate, you're definitely not going to do it. You're not going to make it. I want to read you um, another piece about time. This is, will be, I'll end with this. Um, and this is a piece about my exp shifting experience of time as I grow older and how I have, here too, I found some feeling of transformation. It's called For the Time Being. When I was 49 and my sons were more or less grown, I kept a promise I had made to myself to go on a long retreat before I turned 50. I arranged a leave of absence from my job, had a set of robes sewn for me, and went to a practice period at Tassajara Zen Mountain Center, deep in the coastal mountains of California. For three months, I followed the strict monastic schedule, meditating, studying Buddhist teachers, and working teachings, studying Buddhist teachings, and working in silence at whatever I was assigned to, whether it was chopping carrots or cleaning kerosene lanterns. I didn't get in a car or hear a phone ring the whole time. Zen monks are called to Zazen by the striking of the Han, a heavy wooden block that hangs from a rope beside the temple entrance. The Han is hit with a wooden mallet in an intricate pattern that lasts for 15 minutes. And at Tassajara, where the monks' cabins stretch out along a narrow valley, a second Han, known as the Echo Han, hangs partway down the path to pass the signal along. You can tell how much time you have, to have left to get to your cushion in the zendo by listening to the pattern. The crack of wood on wo wood runs fast through the valley. Written in calligraphy on the block itself are the words, wake up, life is transient, swiftly passing, be aware, the great matter, don't waste time.
One evening, somewhere in the middle of the practice period, it was my turn to hit the echo Han, strike for strike, <coughs> excuse me, strike for strike. I stood on the dusty path, mallet in hand, like a frog on a lily pad waiting for a fly. I faced the garden where the evening sun came through a gap in the mountains and landed on a pair of apricot trees. I was poised in the brief interval between hits, waiting, and the weeks of the practice period stretched out before me and behind me into infinity. And when the next hit came to my ears, my arm lifted the mallet and whacked the board, no holding back, and then it was quiet, and the light was still on the apricot trees, and I was ready for the next hit. A couple of years ago, when I was a few months shy of being 65, I pap packed up my things at work. I loved my job. I had loved it for 17 years. But editing a magazine with a quarterly deadline meant that I was under constant time pressure. I wanted to retire before they had to gently push me out, before my brain wizened up right there at my desk with the phone in one hand and the mouse in the other. I wanted to have time for other things before I died. Quiet time, deep time, for writing, dharma, family, and friends, and for something new and unknown, perhaps. The part of me that wants to lower my bucket into a deep well and draw up cool water is sabotaged by another part. I suffer from a condition that a Zen friend calls Fomes syndrome, F-O-M-S, fear of missing something. <laughs> it's a form of greed, the urge to cram as many interesting activities into the day as possible, coupled with the impulse to say yes to everything. To put it more positively, I'm curious about everything and everybody. And so, when I first retired, feeling rich with time, I signed up for all sorts of activities, classes, and projects. Each separate thing I was doing was worthwhile. I loved my Spanish class and my photography class, for example. But soon, I was busier than before. Where was my deep time? Of course, you can't really measure time at all. Our calibrations are like pencil marks on the ocean. Einstein taught us that time is flexible. It passes differently for a person in commuter traffic, a person centering a lump of wet clay on a potter's wheel, or, so Einstein told us, a person approaching the speed of light in a spaceship. An hour can seem like a year, and a year like an hour. In the last days of my father's dying, he was in a lot of pain from cancer, he would often ask what time it was, and whatever the answer was, he would groan and say, oh no, is that all it is? I couldn't understand why he wanted time to hurry up, because there wasn't anything that was going to happen except that he was going to die. I think the pain made time pass slowly, and he wanted to know that he was getting through it from one hour to the next. I too have had times when I wanted time to hurry by, Mostly, though, time is what I want more of, and as I grow older, time gets scarcer and scarcer. First of all, there's less of it in front of me than there used to be. Second, each year swings by faster than the one before. Third, I'm no good at multitasking anymore. I can only do one thing at a time. And fourth, it takes me longer to do each thing. Age is forcing me to slow down. I remember impatiently watching my grandmother making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for a picnic. She got the jam out of the cupboard and put it on the blue linoleum countertop on the other side of the kitchen. And then she walked all the way back across the kitchen to the same cupboard for the peanut butter, and then the bread, 
It took forever. Well, not quite forever, because she did make the sandwiches, and we ate them on a plaid blanket down in the meadow. Here's the amazing thing. Aging is giving me back the present moment. It's only linear time that's shrinking, and as it does, I have a better chance to enter deep time. It only takes a few seconds to slip through the crack between two hits of the Han into a timeless garden. This is what Zazen is all about, or meditation. It's time out of time. It's stepping aside from activity and slowing down to a full stop. While I'm sitting Zazen, even if my monkey mind is swinging wildly from branch to branch, at least I'm not accomplishing anything useful. As the Heart Sutra says, there is no attainment with nothing to attain. It's easy to get nothing done while sitting Zazen. A person of any age can do it. But now that I'm getting older, I'm learning to accomplish practically nothing in the rest of my day as well. If the trend continues, my next-door neighbor will think I'm doing standing meditation in the backyard when I'm actually taking in the laundry. <laughs> I like to bury my face in the sunny smell of the sheet on the line before I take it down. I like the slow squeak of the line through the rusty pulley as I call in another sweet pillowcase. The laundry lines of my childhood made exactly that noise. I'm not saying I'm ready to quit. In spite of what the Heart Sutra tells me, I still have things I want to accomplish in the world beyond the laundry line. And I want to keep working with other people to help this feverish planet. I'm learning that slowing down is the way. I have to pay attention to my natural rhythms. I try to let each thing take as long as it takes, and I'm trying to put some white space back into my appointment calendar. Now, layers of time live in me. I think of this layering as vertical time, when all time flows into the present moment, as opposed to the horizontal timelines that used to appear on classroom wall charts. On the left, the beginning of bipedal human life, when our ancestors came down from the trees four million years ago in the Pliocene epoch, to the other end of the long line, the current Holocene epoch, in which we hominids can travel via the internet to look down at the melting polar ice cap without ever getting up from our chairs. It's all in me in the present moment. Even though I don't have a clear recollection of our Pliocene days, this body remembers how it feels to climb down from a tree swinging by your arms from the lowest bough, then letting go of the rough bark in your hands and dropping to solid earth like a ball into a catcher's glove. When old people get the generations mixed up and call a grandson by a brother's name, they're not exactly wrong. They're living in the deep time that Dogen calls the time being. Each moment is all being, is the entire world. Reflect now whether any being or any world is left out of the present moment. That's Dogen. I think of time as the landscape I'm traveling through on a train, and the train is my life. I can only see what's outside the window. Yesterday was Naperville, Illinois. Today is Grand Junction, Colorado. Tomorrow will be Sparks, Nevada. I just see the piece that's framed by the train window, but it's all there at once, all those places, the whole continent. I was visiting my granddaughter, Paloma, on her third birthday. We went to the neighborhood swimming pool and played in the shallow end, and she poured pailfuls of water over my head, pretending she was washing my hair. She looks like her father when he was a small child. When I sat on the closed toilet lid in the bathroom while he took his bath, 
watching him fill graduated plastic cups with water and line them up along the edge of the bathtub for Snow White and Peter Pan to swim in. My three-year-old self was there, too, on another hot summer day, filling a wooden bucket from the hand pump in my grandmother's garden in order to paint the garden chairs. Playing in the pool with Paloma, I didn't think of those watery, long-ago moments consciously. I didn't need to. As Paloma turned her bucket upside down over my head, long ago disappeared, and those other childhoods, those other summers, flowed over me and soaked my skin. Before we left the pool, Paloma went over to the lifeguard sitting in his elevated chair. She held up three fingers and called, Hi, lifeguard! I'm three! I'm three! Threeness was in me, too. I can't be in more than one place at the same time, but I can be in more than one time in the same place. Time is not something I have. It's what I'm made of. So I just want to leave you with a thought that although impermanence is scary and life is short and sometimes we're afraid that impermanence is robbing us of our life, we, think we can get fooled into thinking that impermanence is robbing us of our life. But actually, it's really the other way around. Impermanence is what gives us our lives, what gives us birth. Thanks to impermanence, we got born. And impermanence is another name for our life. And here we are living it. So thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.